Our passage this morning is taken from Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We're continuing our series this morning through the Gospel of Mark. And over the past several weeks, we have been following a series of conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in a sense, these conflicts, you'll remember, were instigated by Jesus when he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and then turned over the tables in the temple, right, asserting his authority over God's house. And in Mark chapter 11, it, Mark tells us that it was at this time, after Jesus had overturned the tables in the temple, that the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, began seeking a way to destroy him. And what we're seeing here over these next couple of weeks is that the Sanhedrin now, like generals, have begun sending in different groups back into the temple in order to trap Jesus and to bring his ministry to an end. Last week, we saw that the first group that they sent was made up of Pharisees and Herodians. And that group tried really, really hard to paint Jesus as an insurrectionist to get him in trouble with Rome. But Jesus' response, as you will remember, not only maintained his innocence, but he left his opponents completely and utterly amazed. And so now the Sanhedrin has gone back, they've marshaled the troops together again, and now they're sending a second company to confront Jesus. And this time, sorry, this microphone is really weird. This time, that group is made up of Sadducees. Now, Sadducees, they were a really interesting group of people in the first century. And like the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't hold any official authority in Jerusalem, but instead they sought to influence the actual leadership of Israel. And they were primarily made up of the aristocracy in Jerusalem, and by the first century were actually so well connected in Jerusalem that they held many positions of power, including the position of high priest. 
But what's perhaps the most important thing to know about the Sadducees is what their theological views were. As we see in verse 18, Mark tells us that they believed that there was no resurrection. And when Mark says they didn't believe in the resurrection, he's not specifically talking about Jesus' resurrection, though I'm sure the Sadducees would have denied that as well. What Mark is talking about here is that they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of God's people at the end of history. And here's why. The Sadducees held that only the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch was the only words of God that they saw as authoritative. And so they rejected the resurrection and any other teaching that they believed that they couldn't find in those books. And in fact, historians tell us that the Sadducees were so well-known and so passionate for these views that they were famous for being aggressive and boorish in the way they approached their theological debates. And so you can kind of sense what's about to happen, right? The Sadducees, they're arming themselves with these arguments, and they're going to approach Jesus in order to discredit him with the people by destroying him in a theological debate. And we can look at this, and we can laugh, and we can shake our heads and even mock the Sadducees for their unbelief. But I think what's most important for us as we dive into this passage this morning is to recognize and acknowledge how similar we are to the Sadducees. Because in fact, I would argue that this passage is simply demonstrating the principle from Proverbs 21 verse 2 that says, Every way of man seems right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. All of us seem right in our own eyes, in the choices that we make, in the lifestyles that we adopt, and in the beliefs that we hold. And that's why it should give us great pause as we come to our passage this morning, because despite the Sadducees' stellar education and notable zeal, they still found themselves confronting God himself, or rather, being confronted by God himself. And what's remarkable about this is that in the face of such arrogance, Jesus' response actually mercifully and graciously reveals that we must be willing to be confronted by God's word, Because it alone can expose our spiritual blindness and give us spiritual sight. That is where we're headed this morning as we dive into the passage. But before we dive in, would you please pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as your people to hear your word preached. We thank you that in your word you have shown us your son and revealed all truth that is necessary for us to be reconciled to you and to walk in the light. We pray, Lord, as we work through this passage that by your spirit you would be illuminating our hearts and giving us the spiritual sight that we so desperately need. And Lord, where we are spiritually blind, would you use this time to confront us and expose the spiritual blindness that covers our eyes or continues to cover our hearts? We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So that's where we're headed this morning. The first thing that we need to recognize is that we need to be willing to be confronted by God's word because it alone can expose our spiritual blindness. I want you really quickly, if you have a Bible, to look at verses 18 through 24. And I especially want you to look at verse 24 and notice how Jesus responds to the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they have several verses there building up this wonderful argument opposed to the resurrection. And after hearing their question and considering their case study, Jesus simply says to them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I don't want us to go any further before we pause and really appreciate how cutting this statement really is. Because the Sadducees didn't even make a statement or make a claim in their approach to Jesus. They asked him a question And Jesus is saying that by their question alone, he can tell that they are wrong. That's quite piercing if you take a minute to think about how insightful Jesus is in this moment. In fact, if we dig even a little bit deeper, we can actually see that Jesus is being even more exposing in his response. Because the Greek word that's translated here, you are wrong, can also be translated, you are deceived. And the word that's translated here, you know, could also be translated, you are not able to see. And the reason we know this is because this same group of Greek words is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, when he says to his disciples, I speak to the people in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are you, my disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. You see, the Sadducees prided themselves on their ability to give others theological insight. And Jesus is saying here, despite all your education, Sadducees, despite all of your training, you are spiritually blind. And I can tell because spiritual blindness is rooted in your self-confidence and it is revealed by your assumptions. I want you to look for a moment at verses 20 through 23 and notice how the Sadducees are expressing that their insights are simply rooted in their self-confidence. And you can tell by the way in which they put forth this case study Right? They say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. And when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, this, this example, this case study, could be really, really confusing to us as modern listeners. And so let me just take a quick moment to kind of explain what the Sadducees are getting at. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, if you want to turn there, it says this, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is, what the, this is the passage that the Sadducees are alluding to in verse 9. Super confusing, right? So what does it all mean? Remember, in the Old Testament, that when God made promises to Israel, one of those promises is that each family would be given a plot of land in the land of Canaan. And God, out of a desire for his people and their families to thrive, he gave them this law in Deuteronomy 25 to ensure that if they were in the promised land and a man of a family died, then their widow would not be neglected and their legacy wouldn't be exploited. It seems like a weird law to us, but it's actually revealing a profound level of care and compassion for his people and their families. But I want you to notice here, going back to Mark, that the Sadducees don't really care about this. They don't really care what the passage is really about. They just want to use the passage, kind of commandeer this passage in Deuteronomy to prove the absurdity of the resurrection. It's a really weird circumstance here. And what I want you to notice is that the reason that they're pointing out this absurdity is in the repetition of the word seven. They keep going back to this word seven because what they're trying to do with the number seven is say, listen, this whole thing about the resurrection is completely absurd because this case study, which allows us to logically walk down this passage in Deuteronomy, proves that the resurrection is completely and fully absurd. And what's fascinating about this is that it's not actually demonstrating that the Sadducees have bad Bible study methods, though that is probably true as well. What's really being focused on here is that the Sadducees have no intention of actually talking to Jesus about the resurrection. They're really not interested in having a theological debate. All they're interested in doing is showcasing their superiority. That's all they want to do. And instead, what they end up doing is showing that their views are not rooted in the scriptures, but rooted in their self-confidence. And what they end up revealing instead are all of their own assumptions. I want you to look here in verses 18 and 19, when they, especially in verse 19, the Sadducees reveal their spiritual blindness through their assumptions about God's word. They say, teacher, Jesus, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Notice how they actually kind of couch their argument with this idea of the books of Moses or the authority of Moses. And the reason that this is so significant you'll remember is that these are the only books that the Sadducees find authoritative, right? Those five books of Moses. And what's fascinating is that the rest of the Bible in very explicit ways, right? You can go to Isaiah, you go to Ezekiel, you go to Daniel. There are explicit passages that say there will be a resurrection at the end of history. And they have rejected all of those sources. You gotta ask yourself, why would someone so theologically astute reject the rest of the Bible? 
Perhaps it's because the Pentateuch, right, the first five books of the Bible, those are the only places that the priestly duties are described, right? Duties that the Sadducees, as people well-connected with the temple, they have a vested interest in those things being taken seriously. Or perhaps the reason that they reject it is because when you actually go to the prophets, where it talks about the resurrection, you also find passages that are profoundly harsh with bad priestly leadership. But whatever the reason, right, whatever the reason that they decided to reject the rest of God's word, you need to remember this. They didn't reject God's word out of reverence for God's word. They rejected God's word out of their assumptions about God's word. Because their assumptions about God's word, that is what is revealing their spiritual blindness. And their spiritual blindness is actually keeping them from receiving any ounce of truth. We do well to heed these warnings because the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy describes people very much like this when the Apostle Paul says, these people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It is so much deeper than wrong assumptions and poorly placed confidences. Because remember what Jesus says in his response to the Sadducees. He says, You do not know God's word, and that means that you do not know God. And it's really, really easy for us to point fingers at the Sadducees. But we need to remember that this has been true all throughout church history. In fact, one could argue almost every single heresy in the history of the church was steeped in self-confidence and assumptions. But perhaps the one that will strike you the most is our third president, Thomas Jefferson. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson published a book that he titled The Life and the Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the title that you can look it up now on Wikipedia is The Jefferson Bible. And in this work, Jefferson sought to remove anything from the New Testament that he found disagreeable to his modern, enlightened sensibilities. He literally did this by cutting out sections of the Bible and pasting them together so that he could take that to the publisher. He cut out anything related to the miracles of Jesus. He cut out any mention related to the supernatural. He cut out any mention of the resurrection. He cut out any passage that portrayed Jesus as divine, but he kept all the moral teachings of Jesus. And what is most disturbing about this endeavor is that Thomas Jefferson actually believed himself to be on the side of truth while he was taking his knife to the word of God. It's disturbing to us, right? We think that is ridiculous. Why would anybody do that? We shake our heads at Jefferson, and I will ask you, what does your Bible look like? What parts of God's word are you cutting out? What parts of God's word are you ignoring or rejecting? Is it about the resurrection? Is it about the supernatural? Is it about creation? Is it about the sanctity of human life? Is it about gender and sexuality? Is it about your marriage? Is it about your family? What are you ignoring? Because we all seem right in our own eyes. But it's only God's word in its entirety that will expose our spiritual 
blindness. We need to be willing to be confronted by the word of God in every choice that we make, in every lifestyle that we adopt, in every belief that we hold. And here is the warning, Christian. If you are unwilling to do that, then you need to recognize that you are living more like a Sadducee and less like a Christian. Do not forget that literally the first words that the serpent said to Eve was, did God actually say? How do we ensure that our spiritual blindness is exposed? If you find yourself here saying, Eric, I hear you. I do not want to be deceived. I do want to walk in the truth. Where should you start? And I think the first place to start is to be contrite. You need to ask the Lord to reveal where you are so self-confident and where your assumptions are hidden from your own eyes. And take those assumptions and go to God's word and be willing to confess to him where your choices and your lifestyle and your beliefs do not align with his will. Be contrite. And the second thing that I would encourage you to do is to be critical Guys, if the Sadducees lived today, they would have book deals and they would have conferences. Okay? Do not fall for great Christian marketing. Not everybody that quotes the Bible is following Jesus. And not every church with a sign out front is worshiping God. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who literally examined the scriptures every day to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true. And in Acts chapter 17, Luke writes, they were noble. He commended the Bereans. Because not only does the Word of God expose our spiritual blindness, it also gives us spiritual sight. I want you to go back into the Gospel of Mark and look at verses 24 through 27. Again, notice Jesus' response in verse 27. He says, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. But I just love his comment here in verse 26, where Jesus says, Listen, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him? Look at Jesus' emphasis on scripture in his response to the Sadducees. And before we go any further here, I just want to take a minute to really appreciate how remarkable it is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, is going out of his way to quote the book of Exodus and to point out a truth that has been there for hundreds of years. The author of the book is taking time to quote his own book. He could have just said, I am the one in authority here. This is the truth. And instead, he pointed the Sadducees to the scriptures. We have a tendency in American Christianity to pit Jesus against the Bible. And here's the problem. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that here, and he doesn't do that throughout his entire ministry, right? Jesus is not only quoting Scripture constantly in his ministry, but he actually says this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
To follow the word of God is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow the word of God. And just as the word of God made flesh brought sight to the blind during his earthly ministry, the word of God today brings spiritual sight to us who are spiritually blind. But how? How does God give us spiritual sight through his word? Well, the scriptures tell us that the way in which that happens, that God gives us spiritual sight by the word, or say by the Spirit and through the clarity of the Word of God. I want you to notice again back in verse 26 how Jesus' argument for the resurrection emphasizes the clarity of God's word. Right? So because Jesus here in this passage, he points to chapter and verse in the book of Exodus. And as he's pointing there, he actually is helping us see that the promise of the resurrection is all over the Bible. Notice Jesus' focus on the phrase, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You can find that phrase or the idea captured in that phrase all over the Bible. Not just in the first five books, but even there. And the reason that this is so significant is because this phrase, this pattern of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, what that's drawing attention to and what that's communicating is the essence of God's covenant promises to his people. Those promises are unconditional. Those promises are eternal. And those promises, here's the kicker, are deeply personal. Jesus' argument is profoundly simple to the Sadducees. There must be a resurrection because God is faithful to his covenant promises. Think about this. This is just an amazing kind of aside. The Sadducees would have had PhDs. They would have had to defend their dissertation in order to prove that they had the chops to be able to make these arguments about the resurrection. And Jesus, in two sentences, destroys an entire PhD dissertation. But not only does he destroy that PhD dissertation, he communicates it in such a way that a five-year-old could understand that. There must be a resurrection Because God is faithful to his covenant promises. And to say that death could nullify those promises, that is just ridiculous. What a small God you have, Sadducees. Instead of grabbing some obscure passage in Deuteronomy and then trying to shape his theology about the resurrection around that obscure passage, Jesus is actually modeling for us what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls, check this out, the infallible rule of interpreting Scripture. I'll say it a different way. If you follow this rule, you're probably not going to go wrong in how you study the Bible. Here's what the Westminster Confession says. Where there is a question about the true and the full meaning of any passage, which is one meaning and not many, It must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. When you come to a passage in the Bible and you think, I have no idea what this means. Does this tell me X, Y, and Z? When you're confused, 
search and find other places in the scripture that speak to that same topic or that same theme and use the clear passages to inform the obscure passages and not the other way around. Seems like a no-brainer, right? Unfortunately, that's exactly what the Sadducees were doing. And Jesus models for us, God's covenant faithfulness is pretty clear throughout Scripture. Let's use that clarity to go to Deuteronomy 25, not Deuteronomy 25 to start pontificating about the resurrection. And you can apply it to any type of theological questions. But why doesn't Jesus just go to Isaiah? Why doesn't he just go to Ezekiel and say, you guys are a bunch of fools. You just got to keep reading the Bible. And here's why. I think because Jesus is actually very merciful and he's very kind in his approach to the Sadducees. Because Jesus is using sources that he knew the Sadducees would have to wrestle with. They'd walk away from this interaction with Jesus and they would go, I never saw that before. I need to reevaluate everything about my life and my decisions. That's exactly what Jesus wanted. He not only wanted to show the clarity of God's word, but more importantly, he wanted to show that it is rooted in the certainty of God's character. Let's go back to the passage here, and I want you to notice that we've already seen that Jesus' proof for the resurrection is wrapped up in the clarity in this verse in Exodus. But I want you to notice here in verse 27 that Jesus is not directing or isn't directly connecting this to the theological question of raising of the dead. He's not tying his observation in Exodus back to verse 25. He is doing that, but it's indirectly. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting that statement of, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he's connecting that directly to verse 27. He says, this truth from God's word is showing me not that the dead are raised, but what God is like. God is not the God of the dead, but the living This is really the essence of Jesus' response to the Sadducees. He's saying, you are ignorant, O Sadducees, about the resurrection because you are ignorant about who God is and what he is like. And all spiritual truth that cuts to the heart of our relationship with God is like this. It's rooted in the certainty of God's character. Or to quote the Westminster Catechism, right? What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what God requires of man. This is why, church, theology matters so much. And unfortunately, in our day, we have a tendency to disconnect theological questions from the reality of God's character. We ask questions like, what is the least amount of information that I have to believe in order to be a Christian? How wrong is that? If the point of theology is the study of God to know what he is like, then instead of asking, what should I do? Or what should I believe? We should be asking the question, who is God? And what is he like? 
If we have a great and majestic God, then we should expect healthy biblical churches not to have a minimum set of theological expressions, but a maximum passion for theology. All spiritual truth, whether we're talking about the resurrection, whether we're talking about the virgin birth, whether we're talking about hell or eternal judgment or the finer points of salvation, all of these spiritual truths reveal and reflect the good and perfect character of God. The more we know the scriptures truly, the more we will truly know God. And the best proof to this is actually found in some of Jesus' last moments on earth. You'll remember one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after the resurrection, meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as he's walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't know who he is, and he starts asking them questions about hey, what's taking place in Jerusalem these days? And they're just shocked that somebody isn't aware that Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified and that everything is kind of getting turned upside down in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And he responds to his disciples this way. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and then all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus gave a little Bible study on the road to Emmaus, showing how every single page is held together by the reality of who he is. All of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. The New Testament pointing forward, I'm sorry, the Old Testament pointing forward and the New Testament pointing back. The reality of Jesus. In fact, in verse 31 of that same story, after Jesus sat with them at a table, broke the bread and blessed it and gave it to them, it says their eyes were open. Spiritual sight, guys. And they recognized him and then he vanished from their sight, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened up the scriptures? The scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God, and God is most chiefly expressed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is why we must be willing to be confronted by the word of God, because it alone can give you spiritual sight. So how do we do this? How do we do this as individuals? How do we do this as a church? Here's the first thing. You need to find a Bible and you need to read it. You need to study it. You need to sing it. You need to meditate on it. You need to discuss it. You need to steep yourself constantly in the word of God. And you need to be looking for resources. I would encourage things like the New City Catechism or the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith. And tell yourself that by understanding the clarity of the scriptures, you will not just know about God, but you will come to know God. Find a Bible. 
The second thing that you need to do is that you need to find a church. If you are visiting for the first time this morning, let me encourage you, not come to Grace Church. Let me encourage you to find a church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus and that strives to teach from the whole Bible. Because it is only by actually giving ourselves to what Paul says is the whole counsel of God that we will actually be confronted of our spiritual blindness and given the spiritual sight that we need. Find a church that is centered on the gospel and strives to teach all of the scriptures as they point to Jesus. But if you're here this morning and you call Grace Church your home, here's what I would encourage you to do. You have found a church, and I hope and I pray that we are centered on the gospel and that we do teach from all of the scriptures how they point to Christ. But if we stop doing that, will you tell us that we are wrong? Will you stand up and say, we demand biblical truth in all areas because we want our spiritual blindness to be confronted, because we want spiritual sight to be truly given? It is our responsibility as God's people to seek the Lord in our generation. And sadly, there are many churches that are not doing that. So find a church and be committed to that church so that if and when that church errs, you can stand up and say, I demand to know who Christ is from all of Scripture. So how do we end this thing? Where do we go? And I think the the place I want to send us is verse 19. Look back in our passage, because so much of this is not having to do with our heads. It has to do with our hearts. Because as a church, as individuals, we will do this as the Holy Spirit leads us to say the word the Sadducees say with their tongue in their cheek. And that is the word teacher. When you approach Jesus... Let me phrase that a different way. When you approach the word of God, who is the teacher? Are you the teacher? Or is the word of God your teacher? There's a really well-known phrase in circles where they teach how to preach God's word, and they say the goal is not to be the master of the text, but rather to let the text master you. And may we be a church, may you be a Christian that has not mastered the Bible's text. The Sadducees did that, and they were dead wrong. In fact, they were so dead wrong that they stood up to God himself and said, listen, we've got far more spiritual and theological insight than you, upstart rabbi from Nazareth. And Jesus turned on them and said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Come to Jesus. See him crucified for your sin. See him risen from the dead in all of his authority. And say to him, maybe for the first time or for the hundredth time, Teacher, Master, Lord, by your word and by your spirit, teach me the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if we knew where we were wrong, we would hopefully change. 
And that's the challenge. That's the challenge, Lord. We don't know where we're spiritually blind, and so we ask for your help. We thank you for giving us your word this morning, and we pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for it in a way that brings about revival in our hearts, revival in our church, and revival in our city. We pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see you in every page, and that you would give us hearts to believe and a will to follow you in light of the truth. Lord, we mourn that churches have abandoned your word. We pray that you would deliver those Christians that are in those churches from the lies that they are surrounded by, and that you would place them in churches that are healthy. And we pray that you would protect us from assumptions and self-confidence and arrogance. Humble us in light of your word. And be with us by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.